911. What is the address of your emergency? Um, my name is Tom Martins. I'm at 160 Panther Creek Court, and we need help. Okay. What's going on there? What really happened on the night of August the 2nd, 2015, when Jason Corbett was killed in the bedroom of his home in North Carolina? Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? He's bleeding all over and I, I may have killed him. For eight years now, his wife, Molly Martins, and her father, Tom, have stuck to the same story. Well, from the moment of Tom Martins' 911 call, their, their story has always been that Tom Martins walked into the master bedroom of the house and found Jason choking his daughter and that he was left with no option but to hit him with a baseball bat. And as a result, he died from his injuries. At their sentencing hearing earlier this month for the manslaughter of Jason Corbett, the Martins relied heavily on their claim of self-defence. They used their two weeks in court to portray the Limerick man as a controlling, abusive husband with a history of domestic violence. It was a totally unprecedented sentencing hearing where Jason is put on trial. Documentary maker and journalist Brian Carroll was in the courtroom. And the Martins aren't on trial at all because the first day of of the sentencing hearing, they plead guilty. So their guilt or innocence is no longer in question. So the remaining eight days was all about, was Jason guilty? It was a strategy that ultimately served the Martins well. The father and daughter, who admitted to killing Jason, could now serve as little as seven months in prison. An extraordinary case indeed tonight. Molly Corbett and Thomas Martins here at the Davidson County Correctional Facility waiting to be transferred to where they'll be detained for the next seven months to two years. I'm Bernice Harrison and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, inside the courtroom at the Martins trial. Part one, the carefully planned character assassination of Jason Corbett. Brian, Molly and Tom, they struck a deal. They pleaded guilty to manslaughter. They admitted they killed Jason Corbett. And the possible sentence ranged from probation to 17 years. So there was a lot at stake for the Martins. And the point of a sentencing hearing is for each side to put forward any mitigating or aggravating factors that they hope will influence the judge when it came to sentencing. The Martins used it as another opportunity to portray Jason Corbett as a violent, controlling, domestic abuser. What do they say? Well, what was usually surprising about this plea deal hearing was in the normal course of events, something like this where you plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, you know, the hearing can last anywhere between three minutes and 30 minutes. That's what the local experts in North Carolina were saying to us. So they were absolutely astonished that there was two weeks dedicated to this because normally when you plea, there's a, a range of sentencing. Actually, what the, the, the lynches were told is that the, the, the range would be 36 months up to nine and a half years. But on the first day of the court, the judge introduced this really astonishing line that he could accept extraordinary mitigating circumstances, which would allow him to apply the Probation Act so that Molly and Tom Martins could both walk free because they'd already served three and a half years from the original conviction. 
So instead of having, you know, a short hearing where the judge applies the guidelines to the set of circumstances, what you had was a whole new hearing without a jury, which was utterly dominated by the defence. And it allowed them to bring in all of this new allegations that weren't in the 2017 trial. And the principal allegation and the most difficult allegation for the Lynch family to try and accept was that the Martins were arguing that Jason had killed his first wife, Mags Corbett. And this was a strategy that didn't just happen overnight. This happened literally within the first minute of Tom Martin's police interview. So he, after he calls 911 at around 3 a.m. on August 2nd, 2015, he's brought to the police station voluntarily. He's never arrested. Molly is never arrested or charged at that point. So they're giving voluntary interviews. And within a minute of Tom's interview starting, he says, those children are his children from an earlier marriage. His first wife died in mysterious circumstances. So he was, from the very first moments, laying out the groundwork of this self-defence argument. And what he was trying to do is, because he knew that he had said on the 911 call, he was choking my daughter, and I hit him with a baseball bat. So what they were trying to do is underpin that allegation with another allegation that he choked his first wife to death. So you have a symmetry there, and you have the basis of a strong argument for self-defence. Those allegations were not made in the 2017 trial, but they were played out here over the course of, I'd say, four to five days of the eight-day hearing was dominated by the question of whether Jason killed his first wife. In the court, when that extraordinary accusation that his first wife had died from asphyxiation, which could mean a lot of things, Mm. what was the reaction to that? Well, I think the... The general public or the people in the in, in the gallery were quite stunned by this, but the, the Lynch family had been prepared in advance for it by the, the, the district attorney. And what had happened was about two months before this sentencing hearing took place, the district attorney had hired two experts to look at the Irish pathologist's report into Mags Corbett's death. And the defence... Tom and Molly Martin's team had also hired two experts to look into it. And the game changer here was that experts for both the defence and the prosecution agreed that Jason's first wife did not die of an asthma attack. They said that the Irish pathologist's report was completely unsatisfactory. It failed to meet the standards of, you know, US forensic pathology. And the reason they made this allegation is because if somebody has a, an asthma attack, their lungs inflate. So that should be obvious in, in, in an autopsy. Uh, the Irish pathologist reported that her lungs and heart were, were perfect. And they're saying that the Irish pathologist should have removed Mags's airway to check it for lesions for any signs of choking. And she didn't do that. So what you had was unanimity between both the defence and the prosecution that the cause of Jason's first wife's death was actually undetermined. So this was, I think, the deciding factor in in the district attorney deciding not to proceed with a retrial. Now, there were other issues in that, but that was the deciding factor. They were prepared and the family were prepared 
for the Bartons making these allegations in court. But I don't think they were prepared for the relentless nature of it. You had four days of um, arguments by, by the defence, which culminated in one of Tom Martin's two attorneys standing up in front of the court and, you know, dramatically announcing that Jason had lied, that he killed his first wife. Now, that's an extraordinary leap from her cause of death being undetermined. So what it came down to in the end, it's quite complicated, but two experts for the defence say it's a possibility she died of manual strangulation. Two experts for the prosecution say, yes, it's a possibility, but there are a whole range of possibilities and that it's far from probable and that there was no scientific or physical evidence to substantiate that claim. So at the end of the day, all we know is that her cause of death is undetermined. So when Jason was murdered in 2015, statements were taken from his children, Jack and Sarah, and they were just 10 and 8 at the time. Even though they were later recanted when the children were much older, they did come up again in this hearing. How crucial were these statements for the Martin side in building this picture of Jason as an abuser? Well, it was absolutely vital and crucial because... Just to give you a bit of background, like on, on literally the, the day after the killing, these two kids who are aged 10 and 8 are brought to Bobby Martins, who is Molly's brother and who is also a federal agent. They're brought to his house. They're put in the custody of the woman uh, who has killed her father, who has orphaned him. They're living with them for a period of 10 days. And after four days in that house, they're brought to be interviewed by investigative social workers. So in that intervening four days, the children say that they were coached and threatened to say that Jason hit Mammy, Jason pushed Mammy, Jason used to roll over Mammy's foot in the car. And they were made to introduce little innocuous sounding allegations, things like Jason would lose his temper over lights being left on, over bills not being paid on time. And the reason they were asked to make those is because Molly was going to five different neighbours in her estate and telling each of them that she was being abused by Jason uh, and that she couldn't leave because she hadn't adopted the kids and she would have no rights to them. But she was telling each of those neighbours the exact same little innocuous details like lights not being left on or bills not being paid on time. So each story began to chime with the other. And together it gave this sort of, you know, almost concertina, uh, concertina Jason's guilt as a domestic violence abuser. So when the children go to, it's called the dragonfly interviews when they're interviewed with the social workers, and they say, they repeat these allegations about daddy hit mommy. Now, one thing to notice that these interviews were done one hour after the children had attended their father's funeral. Immediately after they custody and guardianship was granted to Jason's sister, Tracy Lynch, and the kids were brought back to Ireland. Immediately, they recanted these statements and said that they were coached and threatened into making them. But in the 2017 trial, the trial judge decided not to allow those dragonfly interviews 
to be put to the jury. He said they were prejudicial and the, the children had recanted them, so he wasn't going to allow the jury. So immediately that took away a huge plank of the Martins' defence and they were convicted and sentenced to 20 to 25 years on second-degree murder charges. I mean, they've spent over $800,000 on their legal defence over the past eight years. They bring the case to the North Carolina Supreme Court and they, and they manage to overturn their convictions and they're released. So at that point, the DA says he's going to have a retrial. But then when this controversy around or question marks around Jason's first wife's death come into play and when experts for the DA and, and the defence agree that there are question marks about the Irish pathologist's report, the DA takes the decision not to proceed with a retrial and offers them the plea deal. But probably the most horrific thing for the children is that like, they have seen their words get the Martins released from prison. They've seen their words being used as justification for not proceeding with a retrial. They had to accept that there was going to be a plea deal and they would get a vastly reduced sentence. But then, having accepted all of that and having to endure all of that, they go into court and then they have to listen to a totally unprecedented sentencing hearing where Jason is put on trial. And the Martins aren't on trial at all because the first day of the sentencing hearing, they plead guilty. So their guilt or innocence is no longer in question. The remaining eight days was all about, was Jason guilty? And the principal weapon in determining whether or not he was guilty were the children. You know, they were weaponized by the Martins. Their words were used, to, you know, to be released, to win their appeal, to get a plea deal, and now to get, they were attempting to get extraordinary mitigating circumstances which would allow them to walk out of the court without serving another, another day. And part of that was that extraordinary moment in court when the court heard Jason's voice. Because in the year before he died, Molly Martins had began to make secret audio recordings around the house. She had, I think, microphones all around the place. And the court got to hear Jason's voice how did this tie in to the image that they were building of Jason as a hot-tempered, controlling husband? Well, I suppose this begins from the very moment of the 911 call where, you know, he's saying that uh, he's choking my daughter. Molly's in the other interview and saying there's a history of domestic violence in the house. What came out in the court is that Molly had not adopted the children. Jason, he was absolutely insistent that he was never going to let her adopt the children. And he had actually consulted a lawyer in the States to see what, you know, if he did allow her to adopt the kids, would there be a prospect if they divorced that she could get the children? So Molly was in this situation where, you know, she was presenting herself in the neighbourhood as being this super mom. She was involved in the swim team, school runs, any, anything to do with the children. She, she was the super mom. But she knew she would never get the kids and she knew that Jason was considering going back to Ireland, leaving her, taking the kids from her. So what she did is she went to a woman called Melissa Sams, who is a, a family lawyer with 14 years of experience in custody cases. And she'd met Melissa Sams through a book club um, that all of the neighbours were involved in, in in their estate, which is called Meadowlands. So Melissa Sams said to her, you have no rights if you haven't adopted the children, but there is one way, uh, and that one way is to apply for an emergency custody order. But the only way a judge will grant you that 
is if you can establish that Jason was engaged in domestic violence and as a result was a danger to the children. So from then on, she put recording devices throughout the house. And the chilling thing is that there was actually a recording device in the bedroom, the master bedroom, where the killing occurred. So then why didn't, wasn't that recording heard by the court in the first instance? Well, because the district attorney estimates that there were at least 150 hours of recordings and the DA was only ever given three tapes, one of which was this tape that was played in court, which was called by the Martins lawyers the pancake tape because it was a kind of a, a row that happened around the kitchen table on Pancake Tuesday. And... The funny thing is, like, I I had heard this tape before the case and it comes across as, you know, the type of argument that every husband and wife has, you know, uh, over like minor domestic issues. Jason does raise his voice in it. But even the judge said the perfect couple doesn't exist. Every married couple has heated arguments. It doesn't mean that it extends into physical violence. And this tape doesn't extend into any physical violence. The, the, The ultimate thing that they could point to as being a violent act was him slamming his hands on the table. But the background to that was, you know, Molly was preparing a case for this emergency custody order. So she was recording him over eight months. And this tape that was played in court was the very best that they could come up with to show him losing of his temper. Of 150 hours. Of 150 hours plus. Of the 150 hours, only three tapes were handed over to And why the were DA. they not you know, demanded by legally, is there... They sought them under discovery and the defence wouldn't produce them. They said they'd been destroyed. You mentioned the book club and yeah. I thought there was a fantastic nugget in your in your reporting. What books had Molly suggested they read in the Suburban Ladies Book Club? It was fascinating because in addition to going to this family lawyer and telling her about Jason abusing her, she was also going to four other women who were in this book club and painting this story of Jason as a domestic abuser. So in this in this book club, Molly had lied to all the women in, in the estate that she had been the editor and publisher of a magazine in Ireland in order so she could head up the book club. So a couple of months before the killing, she recommended two books to all the other women in, in, in the book club. The first was The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which is famously about a woman who pretends to be a nanny and infiltrates a family in order to get to the children. And the second was Gone Girl, which, of course, is about a woman who plants the seed of domestic abuse in all of her neighbours and depicts her husband as a domestic abuser, when in actual fact, she's the one who's conniving. You befriend a local idiot. Harvest the details of her humdrum life and cram her with stories about your husband's violent temper. Secretly create some money troubles, credit cards, perhaps online gambling. So let's go back to the night in question then. Molly and her father, Tom Martins, they've stuck to the same story for eight years, really from the moment they were interviewed by police. And that is that they acted in self-defence because Jason Corbett, who they've outlined as a violent and abusive bully, was choking Molly in the bedroom of their home. You've spoken to police in North Carolina. What do they believe really happened on the night Jason Corbett died? What's suspected 
to have happened is that Jason had decided that he'd had enough and he had told friends and family that he was going to come home for good. He was going to bring the kids home and, quote, Molly is as crazy as ever. He had a outline to one friend his plan, which was to take the kids, just get on a flight, not bring anything with them, just get home, and then he would go back and sort out the mess afterwards. Molly somehow discovered this. She makes a call to her parents in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's between four and a five-hour drive from Knoxville, Tennessee to, to North Carolina. So Tom and Sharon Martins, who are Molly's parents, decide impromptu at half 12 on a Saturday afternoon, we're going to take this five-hour drive to North Carolina to see uh, Molly and the kids, even though Tom was due at work in Knoxville at 7.30 on Monday morning. So they arrive that night. They have a pizza together. Jason and Molly go to collect Jack from a birthday party. They come back. Jason goes off to bed. The kids go to bed. Molly stays up with her parents down in the basement. And in the Martin's telling of the story, sometime around, they don't give the time, which is Odd. quite interesting. But the 911 call is made at 3 or 2 a.m. So sometime before that, an incident happens where Jason is killed. What the Martins say on the 911 call is that they were awoken by loud thumping noises and Molly screaming in the master bedroom, which was immediately above the, the basement bedroom where, the, where Sharon and Tom were sleeping. Tom says he went up, he picked up a baseball bat, which he had brought with him as a present for Jack. He goes upstairs, he opens the door. Jason is choking his daughter. Tom shouts at him, let her go, let her go. And Jason then moves from a choking position in Tom's story to putting his arm around his neck. And Tom, Tom says to detectives, you know, you know how you can cut off the blood flow by doing this, you know, because Tom has been in the FBI for 30 years. So he says once Jason puts his arm around Molly's neck and he claims he starts dragging her towards the bathroom, that Tom goes into fight or flight mode. And his defence team in the sentencing hearing made huge issue of this about his frontal cortex, losing control of, uh, of himself completely and doing what any father would do to protect their daughter. So he kills Jason and he is, you know, he suffers a horrific death. You know, he's, he's beaten with both a brick and a baseball bat. But Tom is very careful in his police interview to not answer the question, why is the brick in the room? Did you see Molly hit, hit Jason with the brick? He at no point answers that question. He, you know, And what we learned in the course of this sentencing hearing is that Tom Martins was an expert in police interviews. He used to train FBI agents and DEA agents in how to interview uncooperative suspects and how to look out for their evasive tactics. So he is very calm He's never been anything other than calm. So he was in control. Absolutely in control. So from that moment on, Tom's tactic has been to minimise Molly's role in the whole thing. But there's two problems. There's a blood-soaked brick on the floor in the bedroom beside the blood-soaked baseball bat. It's covered in hair. It's bloody on each surface, so it means it's been used to strike several times. Uh, and Molly, in her police interview, she only admits hitting him once. But the autopsy wounds show that there were multiple injuries to his skull, including smashing in his skull with a brick. 
So what the detectives believe and what the, the DA believes is that Tom comes upon this. Uh, Molly has attacked Jason with the brick and Tom feels the need to cover over the brick injuries by hitting him multiple times over the head and in, with the baseball bat. And in the autopsy results, the Dr. Craig Nelson found that a number of the, he said there were at least 12 blows and that there were eight impact sites. So four, four sites were hit at least twice. So what they believe is that these are sites where he'd been hit with the brick and then is hit subsequently with the bat to try and cover it over. That's it for today. Tomorrow, in part two, we'll hear the details from the victim impact statements and how they raised even more questions. If these events played out as Tom and Molly Martin say, that there was a row, uh, that Jason was choking Molly, that Tom had to do this to defend his daughter, then why does somebody's phone computer, hard drive and wallet disappear from the house, never to be found again. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>